Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. Many workers have had to make do with a lot less. Their power has been smashed, their benefits have been cut, and their pay has stayed mostly flat. Which means people need to do a lot more just to get by. They work longer hours, they take out loans, they might even get second jobs. And all this instability, all this extra work just to get by, it has consequences that can actually trap people even more. I feel like the debt just sort of hangs over you still. Always, evermore. Always. I'm, I've actually been, like, kind of dodging calls from my government loan company. How can you get ahead if you're working two jobs, got student loans, and a big mortgage to pay every month? Today, how workers in the U.S. have been forced to rely on dangerous, unstable coping mechanisms. I'm Devin Kadiyama. And I'm Sam Harnett. Welcome to The Bet. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. All this week, we've been hearing a special five-part series made by KQED reporter Sam Harnett, sound engineer Chris Hoff, and The Bay's editor, Alan Monticilio. This is the fourth episode of that series. How we got here, part four, disempowerment and debt. 
This is the beginning of a story I did back in March. It was about how airline workers weren't getting bailout money because they didn't work directly for airlines or airports. Airlines have been fissuring their workplaces since the late 70s. Today when you fly, many of the people doing the things like cleaning your airplane, preparing your food, or doing security for the airline are actually working for subcontractors. My piece was the story of one of those subcontractors, Tony Vega. Like what I do, I, I put the, the food on the plate. So if you're putting, uh, let's say, uh, rice with vegetables and nice looking salmon, then you gotta throw some sauce on the top. How many meals do you think you've made in your life? That, you're talking about millions. Millions and millions of meals, all carefully arranged into their little containers with the sauce put on top, just so. Here's the thing about Tony. He's been doing this work for a long, long time. Remind me, how long have you worked in this job? It was like over 30 years, right? 39. 39 years, wow. And after all that time and hard work, Tony is still in such a precarious position. What he's been through over the last four decades really sums up everything we've talked about in this series. First, he's in a fissured workplace. He's not working for an airline or the airport, but a subcontractor. Second, his benefits have been cut. Back when he started the job, he had great health insurance. It paid for everything. Now he has super high premiums. He also used to have two full weeks of paid sick leave. Today, he has just four days. The company can't even do the little things right to make Tony feel good at a place where he's worked for almost 40 years. I would say the last uh, 15 years or so, the company has been going very, very sour. When I completed 35 years, they didn't send me no letter like, thank you for your hard work and dedication for your 35, nothing. Really, really, I don't know. I call him cheap. Tony is lucky to still have a union. But even with a union helping him fight for raises, listen to what the owners at Gate Gourmet have been able to do to his pay over the years. Gate Gourmet employees are represented by Unite Here Local 2. But Vega, who's active in the union, says they often have to fight for over a year just to get a 25-cent raise. That feels like you're getting slapped. Slap you in the face. And it's like, take what I offer or, you know, if you don't like it, go somewhere else. After four decades of work, Vega's hardly making any more than when he first started. Back in 1991, he got $6.20 an hour. Adjusted for inflation, that's about $17.60 an hour today. Now he says his position makes 19 bucks an hour. So after all of those years of negotiations, picketing, of fighting, he's gained just $1.40 an hour. Just $1.40 an hour more than when he started almost 40 years ago. During all this time, Tony's living expenses keep going up. Rent in the Bay Area has increased. He has a family to provide for. So to survive, Tony has done what lots of people do. He's worked more and more and more hours. Tony says he was up to 50 or 60 a week before the pandemic. The only way I made it, I made it so far, I had to work so many hours. 
If I work uh, eight hours a day, I feel like I, I've been working on that day. That is the only way he's making it. He's working so much that eight hours a day doesn't feel like a full workday anymore. Tony's not alone. On average, we work more hours now than we did in the late 70s. And today, more than a third of all Americans work more than 45 hours a week. American society likes to romanticize working yourself to the bone. It's hustling or pulling yourselves up by your bootstraps. But what we're really talking about are coping mechanisms for workers who've had better options taken away. To walk us through these coping mechanisms is someone who's seen the great rift shift from a high vantage point, the White House. Robert Reich was labor secretary under Bill Clinton from 1993 to 1997. Now he's a professor at UC Berkeley. Robert says since the 70s, workers have piled on more and more coping mechanisms. He says there have been three big ones. The first uh, coping mechanism, if you want to call them coping mechanisms, that families used uh, when wages started to stagnate or decline was women moving in large numbers into paid work. Some of this was because women were winning the chance to work in the mainstream economy. But part of it was also just pressure on families to make enough money to survive. Now, this was something new, particularly for middle class and many working class women. Uh, poor women had been working right through. Uh, but starting in the late 70s and through the 80s, we had this huge wave of uh, women into the paid workforce. That first mechanism worked for a while. More and more households had two incomes instead of one. But the cost of raising a family, having a home, getting by in this country, they keep going up as wages stay flat. You get to a point of uh, just where it's no longer worth it, at which point uh, in the 1990s, the second coping mechanism kicked in, and that was everybody working longer hours. Uh, men and women, couples uh, of all sorts, everybody was working longer hours. People like Tony Vega. I had to work so many hours. But there are only so many hours in a week. And as business owners took more and more benefits and pay from workers, all those hours weren't enough. So Americans turned to their most valuable asset, if they were lucky enough to have one. The third coping mechanism, where the first two were exhausted, was using your houses, your homes, uh, as piggy banks. And Americans did this in large numbers in the early years of this century, uh, between 2000 and 2008, uh, because housing prices were going up, everybody assumed they would continue to go up. They used their homes as collateral to get right. bank loans. Suddenly owning a home wasn't the end goal of the American dream. It was a way to borrow money. And that just added more risk to people's lives. You know how well that turned out. In 2008, when bankers imploded the financial system by gambling with mortgages, millions of people lost their homes, and all the work and money that they put into getting a house was gone. This is going to be one of the watershed days in financial markets history. It was a manic Monday in the financial markets. The Dow tumbled more than 500 points after two pillars of the street tumbled over the weekend. Lehman Brothers, a 158-year-old firm, filed for bankruptcy. Robert says the financial crisis was a big awakening moment for the American public. The shocks of the crisis were so strong that it made people more willing to admit that our world of shareholder capitalism was systemically oppressing them. And no matter how hard they worked, there was no way out. That is a hard, terrifying reality to swallow. 
and it spurred people to action. People took to the streets to protest, to protest income inequality, the privilege of the elite, the financial system. Occupy Wall Street was asking for radical change. The 99% and the 1% is controlling everything, financially everything, and that should not happen. These coping mechanisms that we've been talking about, they're a result of everything that has been taken away from workers. They are the attempts of people trying to solve the systemic problems all by themselves, which we're constantly being told can be done in America. So I asked Robert, why did the financial crisis change that? And why were more people protesting and demanding systemic change before 2008? Some of it was a lack of knowledge. Uh, the other is uh, ideology. Uh, that is, there is an American um, notion, a deeply ingrained, almost religious belief in the free market. And if the market says you're not worth as much as you thought you were, or your worth is actually not going up or it's going down, then uh, there must be something wrong with you rather than wrong with the system. But there was this third and important factor, and that is politics. Because you see, as wealth and income went to the top, you can't separate wealth from power. More and more money flooded into the federal government and into state governments basically lobbying and getting changes in the law and prohibiting, uh, stopping uh, changes from occurring that might help average people. I know, I was labor secretary in the 1990s. I saw it happen. An economic crisis like the pandemic we're in now is an opportunity for change. It's the fourth major economic crisis in the last 100 years. After the Great Depression in the 20s and 30s, we got labor protections, the New Deal, and welfare capitalism for white unionized men. After the high inflation and high employment of the 70s, we got an attack on workers, cutbacks to welfare, and Milton Friedman's world of shareholder capitalism. And after the Great Recession, there was a lot of talk of change. But millions of people still haven't recovered. And workers are increasingly isolated and disempowered. Shareholder capitalism still reigns. Income inequality has actually gone up since 2008. So now we're in another crisis. We've got a global health pandemic. We have massive unemployment in America. And already, the signs point toward more inequality. Workers are taking a much bigger hit than shareholders. It's a desperate situation. And when people don't have any other ways to get basic needs met, when they've gone through all the other coping mechanisms, well, then they turn to something that limits their future options even more, that increases pressure on them and increases risk. I'm talking about debt. Coming up. You're essentially debt financing basic needs, right? It's not like you're debt financing televisions. It's not like you're debt financing, you know, your third house. How debt traps workers in a vicious cycle with no way out. In 1981, Studs Terkel interviewed a guy who had a job that Studs says he'd missed for his book entitled Working. This is an excerpt from that interview. In talking to people for my book, Working, I neglected to interview one kind of 
professional, the air traffic controller. And I thought perhaps we'd talk to an air traffic controller who's been fired. And to have him describe his day, what is the nature of the work, uh, the history of the situation that led up to the strike and the lockout and the firing. His name is Jim Pauley. You know, as we begin talking, Jim, I notice that you've been drinking so far about two, three cups of black coffee. Is it always black coffee? Always black. I, uh, I drink about 10 to 20, 30 cups of coffee a day. What about your colleagues? Uh, most of us drink black coffee. Uh, some put some cream in it, and there's a few who have been on doctor's advice now that they no longer drink coffee. But well, Why do you drink that many a day? I don't know. I just uh, keep the energy levels up, the adrenaline pumping. Suppose you begin your life as an air traffic control. Why don't you start? start your, what's your day like when you were working? The normal schedule is to work 4 to midnight, and let's start it out on uh, Sunday. You go to work 4 to midnight on Sunday. How many, many hours work? a week? 40 hours, 40 plus hours. overtime. Plus overtime. Now, suppose I say to you, I'll be the devil's advocate. Okay. 40 hour a week. That's a normal work week. What's your beef? Because one of, one of the things during the strike, you raised the question of a shorter work week. Right. Well, we don't feel that working the 40-hour work week, we have enough time away from the job. If, if you look at the schedule I just described, you leave work at 11 o'clock at night, probably anywhere from 15 minutes to a half-hour drive home sit down and you can't go to sleep right away because the tensions have built up through the shifts so you're probably up until one o'clock in the morning. Now we know that many uh, working people have tensions. The truck driver certainly does. Well for that matter the typist does. What is it about the tensions? What's the word tension? Tensions of an air traffic controller. It's the instantaneous decisions that have to be right. You can never be wrong because when you're wrong you're going to kill somebody. The area that I work in particular, the aircraft are moving at 600 miles an hour. So that means they're going to cover 10 miles in less than a minute. You have to make a decision. You have to make it right. You don't have time to do it a second time. It does, after you get home, in my home, whenever I got home from a day shift or whatever, everybody just leaves me alone for at least an hour. And I just sit down, lay down on a couch, try to get collect it back together and get back to some semblance of normality again. Jim Pauley, thank you very much for, for offering us a picture, a portrait of a day in the life of an air traffic controller. Thank you for having me. In the first few weeks of sheltering in place, I spent a lot of time calling people up on the phone because I was worried about them. But what's depressing is that my first concern often wasn't their health, which it should have been, but their finances. Do they still have a job? Can they pay rent? Can they even collect unemployment? I got on the phone with some people that I hadn't talked to in a long, long time. It's funny that we, yeah, we knew each other as kids and didn't, you know, didn't connect for so many years. I know, and I feel badly about that. It's largely just because no, no, no. I'm, I'm yeah. so bad at, like... I'm talking to Katie Pike, who now goes by Catherine. She's in her early 30s, just a few years younger than me. We grew up near each other in upstate New York and then drifted apart. I've only talked to Catherine, like, twice in the last decade. But, you know, we're Facebook friends. These days, she lives in Southern California. 
I got in touch with Catherine because I knew she was suffering from something that a lot of people are suffering from. Debt. You feel like the, the debt just sort of hangs over you still? Always. Evermore. Always. I'm, I've actually been like kind of dodging calls from my government loan company because I was... Catherine doesn't have debt because she was living it up and spending beyond her means. It's because she went to college and took out loans to pay for it. I think it, it was like 75 at its peak. Whoa, so 75 grand in debt at its peak and you're like 22 years old, 23. After Catherine finished college, she wanted to get a master's in creative writing. She got into a few programs, but none offered any funding. So she just didn't go. I didn't realize that there was a class system already in place and that I didn't belong to the class that gets to go to graduate school because I didn't happen to have a good financial backing at that point or any family that could have lent me any aid. And that's the thing about her debt. Not only is it making life harder for her in the pandemic, it's been a roadblock for years. It's really limited her options in life. When Catherine realized that more school wasn't a possibility, she started substitute teaching, which she actually really liked. And now she wants to be a special ed teacher. But the debt is getting her again because she has no time to get credentialed. She's too busy working. Catherine has two jobs. Before coronavirus, she was working six days a week. And she often did a double shift. She'd substitute teach in the morning, and then she'd change her clothes, get in her car, drive to the restaurant, and wait tables all night. Wages are so low that it took both jobs and six days of work a week just to cover her bills. Yeah, when you can't take time off to go to school because you have to pay rent, um, I, I, I feel like there's no way that I can take off like two years and go to school or one year if I want to do that like absolute hellacious master's program. This is the trap that so many workers are stuck in. Once their unions have been weakened, their workplaces fissured, their benefits taken away and their wages suppressed, people turn to loans and credit cards and mortgages. And the hope is that all this can deliver them the kind of middle class life that Americans, mostly white Americans, got in the 1950s and 60s. But in reality, a lot of debt just loads up more pressure. It adds more risk, and it takes away more options. And Americans have tons and tons of debt. Hannah Appel is a professor of anthropology at UCLA. You know, one of the most widely cited statistics on this comes from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Household debt, you know, adjusted for inflation, was at an all-time high, which is $13.5 trillion dollars. If you do the math on that, $13.5 trillion comes to an average of around $42,000 per person in America. But of course, it's not an average. Black and brown people have way more debt because they've been excluded from the mainstream economy and preyed on by lenders. The total amount of debt in this country has actually increased since I talked to Hannah. But even that statistic of $42,000 per person, it falls far short of how much debt Americans actually have. That statistic really is only counting mortgage debt, auto loan debt, student debt, and credit card debt. So those are all very important, and it's good that it's tracking those. But if we actually think about the total indebtedness of households, which would have to include utility bills, medical debts, municipal obligations, so certainly traffic tickets, but also very significantly fines and fees in the criminal punishment system, right? Payday loans, title loans means that even that statistic, which already on its own is historically unprecedented, is actually woefully under the real number. 
And its particular blind spots are for the forms of household indebtedness that disproportionately affect black and brown communities. If you want a case study in how bad debt has gotten in America, just look at student loans, which is now one of the top four sources of debt, along with credit cards, auto loans, and mortgages. Student debt is so enraging that you can hear Hannah pounding on the table as she talks about it. Student debt right now stands at $1.7 trillion, right? And that is actually second only in this country to mortgage debt. In 1990, student debt was too insignificant to measure. There wasn't even a measurement for it, right? So merely, what is that, about a little less than 30 years ago, there wasn't even a measurement for student debt. And today it is the second largest form of household debt behind mortgages. Think about how sick this is. Kids are told to go to college so they can learn and have a bright future. But when they come out, they have these huge loans. So they have to get jobs, whatever jobs they can find, to just start making money to pay their bills. So like my friend Catherine, she can't go be a special education teacher because she's stuck paying loan debt, substitute teaching, and waiting tables. And because of everything we've talked about in this series, there's no guarantee that the jobs that she does have will be enough to ever get out from the debt burden. So many people in America get trapped in this situation as early as 17 or 18 years old when they go to college. Hannah says the recent rise in debt comes from both the disempowerment of workers and the disinvestment in public goods and services. And so what happens, right, when wages stagnate? What happens when the kinds of public goods and services, including public college, including medical care, mental health care, right, including pensions, what happens when those get removed? What you get is a moment of inclusion, quote unquote, in credit markets. Hannah is talking about a concept called predatory inclusion. And once I heard this term, I couldn't get it out of my mind. Here's an academic definition of the term. Predatory inclusion refers to a process by which a marginalized group is provided access to a good service or opportunity, but on exploitative terms. Basically, it's dangerous credit and loans given to people who've been excluded from the mainstream economy, maybe because of the color of their skin, their gender, their immigration status, or their disability. The credit seems like a good chance to move up, to get a job, an education, a house, a car, but really, it just entraps them. You need to buy stuff? Sure, but you can't have good wages. Instead, you get a credit card with high interest. You want to go to college? Okay, but you got to take out this huge loan. Your car breaks down. You can't get to work unless you fix it. Get cash advances from a payday lender. These aren't the kind of tools that will help you get ahead. This is not a little loan from your parents to start a business or a low-interest mortgage for a dream house that's just out of your reach. This is the kind of debt that can ruin your life. The clearest, most vicious story of predatory inclusion that I've ever reported on is what happened to the taxicab drivers in San Francisco. So just a little backstory here. In 2010, San Francisco started selling taxi medallions for $250,000 a piece. These are the permits that allow you to operate your own cab. They used to be free and awarded to people who had been driving a long time. It was a seniority system. But then to make money, the city started selling them. More than 700 drivers took out loans to get these medallions. And most of these drivers were recent immigrants from South Asia and Eastern Europe. It was hard for them to get jobs that paid enough to live in the Bay Area. There just weren't a lot of options for them. So owning a cab at that time was a rare shot at breaking into a middle-class life. You'd go into debt for a short time, you'd drive the cab, you pay back that loan, 
and then you have your own taxi and some financial security. Well, after the city made tens of millions of dollars selling these medallions to these drivers, or monetizing the medallions as they say, well then just one year later, the city failed to stop Uber and Lyft from flooding the streets with cars and operating without taxi medallions. This unfair competition destroyed the cab industry. Suddenly, those 700 drivers who bought medallions were making almost no money, but they were still stuck with tens, even hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. It's literally killing them. Several cab drivers have died from stress-related illnesses while in their taxis. I did a series of stories about these drivers for KQED. This is Namdev Sharma, who ended up losing his house because of his medallion debt. Enjoying my life. But from last six years, you know, it's going worse and worse. I lost my house two years ago. Where was your house? It was Union City. When you were driving cab and you bought the house, did you ever think you would lose it? Uh, no, I was not thinking actually to lose the house. Yeah. Because me and my wife, we both were working. I was not thinking it's going to happen to us after about Medallion. I was thinking maybe we could, I could save more money. When you had to sell your house, what did you tell your kids? I told them we're losing this house. Drivers like Namdev used to wait at the airport for three to four hours for just one ride. And that was before the pandemic. Of course, now their situation is even more dire. You don't get a clearer failure of the American dream than this. I have no time for my children. No time for, I mean, family. So this, this is not a life, you know, I came to this country. This, I feel like this work is disgusting, you know. Sit here and wait and wait and get ready for the next day to do the same thing. The taxi medallions are just one example of predatory inclusion. As relatively new immigrants, the drivers had limited options. The city sold them something that seemed like a good deal, but really, it just trapped them more. Because business owners and politicians have disempowered workers in all the ways we described in this series, debt is often their only option. Here's Hannah Appel again. To make up for all of those stagnating wages, to make up for the fact that there were no longer public colleges, to make up for the fact that people didn't have the kinds of jobs that allowed them to have pensions, there was a democratization, quote unquote, of credit markets, right, of household credit. And so what does that turn into? Household debt, student debt medical debt, credit card debt. Hannah says predatory inclusion rose right alongside the push for racial and gender equality in the civil rights and women's liberation movements. But she says it's a poor substitute for real empowered inclusion in the economy. When you're trapped by this kind of debt, you don't really have a chance to get ahead. You need credit cards and loans just to get by. You're essentially debt financing basic needs, right? It's not like you're debt financing televisions. It's not like you're debt financing, you know, your third house. You are debt financing medical care. You are debt financing education. And while nobody would call incarceration a basic need, you are debt financing incarceration if you're bound up in that system, right? And so for families who don't have access to intergenerational wealth, for families who already experience discrimination in labor markets, that form of household debt financing has radically unequal effects across racialized communities. Just like with the removal of benefits, the destruction of unions, and the fissuring of work, Hannah says this giant debt entrapment system has been accelerating since the late 70s. But she says it's not some evil plot. 
We're actually talking about things unfolding somewhat haphazardly over decades. So did Ronald Reagan and did Margaret Thatcher have an idea about neoliberalism and tell us that there was no alternative, that rich people were no longer going to pay taxes and thus there was no alternative but to take away the social safety net? Certainly, but it's not kind of, you know, five guys sitting around a table planning to put people into debt. Instead, it unfolded because of everything we talked about in the first part of this series. Because we've created a society where corporations have been focused on shareholder profit, not social welfare. And in their pursuit of profit, they have taken more and more good options away from people. And to cope with all this, people work themselves to the bone, get second jobs, and go into debt. Next time. I can imagine a world in which you had, um, you know, a, an army of Instacart shoppers who were employees who got really good benefits, who really felt dignity and value, who, in, you know, were proud of their work, who were paid well for their work. As we wrap up this series, we look at how gig work is the culmination of everything we've talked about so far. Then we think about some steps we could take to start changing this whole system we're stuck in. If you want to read up more on debt, check out Can't Pay, Won't Pay, which is written by a collection of different authors. And for a much longer look back at history, there's always David Graeber's book, Debt, The First 5,000 Years. How We Got Here is made by Alan Montecilio, Chris Hoff, and Sam Harnett. For the better part of a decade, I worked as a sound engineer for a news show in San Francisco. And after, you know, years of mixing stories and interviews, I started noticing that people really like to talk about the concept of community. And made me start thinking that you can kind of tell how much we miss something by how much people talk about it. So I started gathering all these quotes and I made this little montage Years and years and years of people searching for community. Uh, what we try to do is build community here. But we also need to look at communities. Community. Community. Community work. Shock the community. We see that reflected here in our community garden program. The mobile food vendor community. Fight the crime within your community. Let's start going out to the community. Community gatherings. Making the community safer as a whole. In the local community. And make community every day. To give people the power to build community to bring the world closer together. Most of the community. Community beautification projects or community garden. And so all these communities are silenced. Community. That's the real sense of community. Communities. Community. To address the community's needs. Community relations. Pillar in the community. 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 In a community, people have to have a sense of pride in their community. We want to help one billion people join meaningful communities. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. 
the land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. Thanks.